Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. As you turn there, I'm going to read uh, sort of what Lucy already alluded to, which is the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Colossians chapter 1, go there first, and then maybe take notes on what I'm about to read um, as we go through. So Matthew 21 and 1 says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, and saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mount mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of, the, of a beast of burden. The disciples, disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and other cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now all four Gospels give an account of this. I'm going to read... Uh, a small variation or difference that we find in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verse 9. It says, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. In Luke, chapter 19, this will be the last one I read. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, because they were being boisterous and loud in their worship of God. Verse 40 says, He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Church, we come together to celebrate Palm Sunday. And sometimes we look at the account of Palm Sunday, and what we do is we say, that's ideal. That's what we should be doing. You know, We should be shouting out and things like that. I'm not saying that that's entirely wrong. What I'm telling you is that this same crowd, seven days later, will be crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They will ask for Barabbas. The zealot, the, the, the man who was a murderer, a, a political assassin, Pilate will present Jesus in this Barabbas. Barabbas meaning son of the father, by the way. How ironic, right? I'll release one of them. And they want Barabbas, and they demand that Jesus is crucified. We as people are very fickle. Don't look down your nose at these people in the past and say, oh, those people. How could they? We do the same exact thing. We cry out for deliverance one minute, and the next moment we abandon Jesus as though he's never been there to us. That he's never helped us. That he's never been there because he's not there seemingly now. And so I just don't want us to look at this verse and say, oh, that's perfect, because it's not. You see a flawed group of people who are very excited, but for the wrong reason. 
They are praying for deliverance. But if you read through the Gospels, the deliverance they're looking for is not the deliverance that Jesus has come to give. They're looking for an overthrowing of the Roman government. They're, they're looking to have their own land and their own citizenship and their own nationality restored. Because at this moment, yes, they have their land, but Rome occupies it. Hence, them taking Jesus to Pontius Pilate and not just crucifying him themselves. They had no power or jurisdiction to do that. They handed him over to Pilate and to Rome. So they don't see the biggest problem, and that's the deliverance from sin. That's the deliverance from Satan's kingdom. That's the deliverance from death. It's, it's the Psalms, and I believe that Paul quotes it again uh, in one of his epistles. You know, death, where is thy victory? Where is thy sting? You know, the salvation of Jesus found through the cross, though we might die physically, we do not die eternally. We, we will one day be reunited with our King and our Lord and our Savior, and this world that we have known will be all gone. This world that we have known, it's all we've known, will be but a shadow and a faint memory. But we will be in the kingdom of God. He will be our God. We will be his people. Our bodies will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says. And we will be given new bodies, uncorruptible or incorruptible. They will not be flawed with sin like they are now. Everything that we do right now. We are spirit-filled people. If you're a believer in Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. But... That is in direct conflict to the very flesh you still inhabit. So I want to do good, but my flesh does not. Because this will feel good, but this is what I should be doing. And Paul goes to great lengths in Romans 7 to say, you know, that which I should do, I don't. And that which I shouldn't do, I end up doing. What a horrible, wretched man that I am. But he explains that Jesus has come to deliver us. Hosanna, to deliver us from that very bondage. So that our life is not one of just being wishy-washy and, and, and being like a reed blown in the wind, just back and forth and back and forth and up and down and up and down. We end up becoming people who are steadfast because our foundation, our bedrock is Jesus Christ. So church, I come to bring you this message to alert you, to challenge you, to, to warn you, to, to plead with you what Paul is about to plead with the Colossians. So Colossians chapter 1 Verse 15 says this, He is, that is Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him are all things hold, uh, all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for that last line there. I mean, for all of it, but for that last line, making peace by the blood of the cross. You have come to make peace with your people. And while we look around the world and we see war, and we see temporary moments of peace, you have come to bring peace between yourself and your people. Your word is clear that enmity exists between us and you prior to Jesus. But once we meet Jesus, we indeed can shout, Hosanna. We are delivered from the kingdom of death, the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of Satan, 
into your kingdom where there is no corruption where there is no sin where there is only you and your goodness I pray to today Lord that we would see that in contrast like we never have rejoicing that we have been moved from one kingdom to the other not by what we've done but by what Jesus has done on the cross in Jesus name we pray amen Imago Dei. Anybody familiar with that phrase? Imago Dei. It's Latin for the image of God. Um, it's a political year, right? It's a it's an election year. So you have candidates coming, no matter what position they are running for, at some point they're going to put on their, their religious face. Um, it's gotten to a day and an age where that doesn't matter as much anymore. Um for for instance, uh, candidate Bernie Sanders. I'm not here to throw him under the bus or anything. I'm just his his religious position is mostly atheistic or agnostic, acknowledging that maybe there's a higher power, but but not really certain what that is. He's from Jewish descent, um, which is really odd to me. My point is this: is that that is not affecting necessarily his campaign. Twenty years ago, forty years ago, a hundred years ago, unheard of today this is where we find ourselves no amount of us crying or whining to get it back to the way that it was will change that it's all part of the plan of God it's all the part of the uh, descent uh, prior to the return of Jesus and you know at some point we got to get okay with that we got to say okay that's just the way the world is gonna go downhill before Jesus returns it's what he warned us about it's what he's promised us it's gonna happen why fight it let it go let it go like the frozen song I was hoping to kind of instigate that in your minds for a moment. Um, so the reason why I bring that up is because many folks, even if they're not religious, will kind of pull out this card that we are all created in the image of God. And they pull that from Genesis chapter 1 when God created man. On the sixth day, he created man, right? And it says that, that we were created, or that man was created in God's image. One of the really cool things about... Uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 is that it's one of the first inferences to the Trinitarian God. Now if you read through your Bible it doesn't say uh, it's not God talking you know just out in general let me make man in my image. It says that God said let us make God in our image. Who's he talking to? He's not talking to man. Man's not been created. He's not talking to the animals because they didn't have that kind of power or, or, or intellect. It's this inference to this God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, kind of all in community with one another during creation. As we've just read, creation was created for Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus. You get this impression that God has created all things to honor the Son whom He loves. That it's not just happenstance or, or coincidence that these galaxies and everything all exist but they were all created for the sun and through the sun and by the sun that you and I were created for that very purpose and so people will pull out this verse generally people who are not Bible scholars people who have just kind of heard this rhetoric and then repeat it without much research into it they say well we're all created in the image of God so we're all equal and we all have equal access to God that's the part where you and I as Christians must realize that that's not the truth. That's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible says. Because if we pull out the card that we were created in God's image, we have to continue with what the story says. And if you continue on in the book of Genesis, 
you find out really quickly within just a couple of chapters, right, seemingly right after the creation of man, man sins. God says, here's this, these two trees. Don't eat of them. The snake fools Eve or tricks her or entices her, tempts her to eat it. She does. She causes Adam to eat. They sin. If the image of God were like a mirror, if they mirrored God's image at that point, sin shattered that mirror. And from that moment, from that time, every ancestor from Adam and Eve has been corrupt, the Bible says. Our flesh has been corrupted. You ever notice how, you know, not, not for us good Christians, but those slightly profane jokes are just kind of, <laughs> like your Beavis and Butthead all of a sudden. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh at that. But it still does. That's the corrupted flesh looking at that and saying, oh, and then, then oh, I can't live with shutting your laptop or putting away your phone or something. Because the flesh is still there. The flesh has been corrupted and broken. And that's just a small fraction of what the flesh is like. Since then, the image of God has been destroyed and distorted and corrupted. So yes, in a sense, we do bear the image of God prior to Christ, but we bear it very badly. Like, like one of those funhouse mirrors you go to and you're all distorted and messed up. And what happens is Jesus comes, not to fix that, meaning, oh, Adam and Eve sinned, I just got to go put the pieces back together. Instead, he completely destroys it so that we might be born again. See, if the plan was just to just clean us up and make us better people, I don't think Jesus had to die on a cross for that. He could have just gave us more rules. He could have just told us, hey, be better at what you're doing. Just impose legalisms rather than provide grace. Instead, he provides the grace that allows us to be born again, to be different, to be a brand new creation, the Bible says. See, for me, when I read the Bible and I read those verses, brand new creation, transformed, no longer the same, born again, to me, that is my hope. Hope not only that I'm forgiven of my past sins, but this that I'm struggling with now will, will slowly be worked out of me, that God is refining me. And I think for a moment, the God of all creation has his attention on me in that way. Those of you with kids, you ever have those times where the kids just, they just need your attention. They are like jumping off everything. And it's the, the time generally where you don't have attention to give. You're on the phone, you're talking to somebody, you're trying to pay bills, you're at the drive-thru at the ATM or something. They're like, mom, 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 dad, 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 mom, mom, dad, dad. And you're like, oh, give me five seconds demanding attention. You know, that still exists in adults today. You know, they just don't say mom, mom, dad, dad. They say things like take, 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 take inside. Porn, 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 porn. Alcohol, alcohol, alcohol. Anything to get me attention, to get me identity. For someone to look at me and notice me. All It's all part of being the messed up humans that we are. But all of that is what Jesus has come, not to just fix and tweak and put back together, to be like the tin man in the Wizard of Oz, just give us a little oil so we can walk better, but to completely destroy what was already broken and raise us back up. And to me, that brings hope because I know that the Father sees me. It doesn't mean I'm always approved in the sense that I'm doing the right thing. If I'm sinning, it's not like the Father's looking at me going, yeah, Tony, all right, keep going. I know that he has attention, his attention on me to even correct me of that and to rebuke me of that and to bring me out of that, to rescue me from it. 
that's where my hope lies. Now, that being said, this image of God, um, let me give you an illustration. You know, um, we have these music sheets up here. Let's see if I got one. I was going to bring one as an example, but I didn't. Uh, this one will kind of work. So prior to being the pastor here, I was an associate pastor at a church in California. And um, one of my, my many hats that I wore were, was a worship leader. And so as a worship leader, you have to get the music together. And, you know, these are copies from those songs in California. I thought ahead and said, you know, I'm going to make my own book of songs and just carry them with me wherever I go. As a result, I have all these song sheets, and some of them look pretty decent like this one, but you can see a lot of the chords are handwritten. Actually, whoever wrote this one, it's the original ink. This isn't a photocopy. It means people in California have the photocopies of this. But if you photocopy something enough, and if you go through my songbook, you find out really quickly, wow, some of these are distorted. You know, they're all messed up. They're too far to the left. They look nothing like the original. If you've ever made a copy of a copy of a copy, then, you, then you, you've seen that distortion. You remember the days of, of VHS tapes? And I know none of you would do this, but you could, you could take two VCRs, hook them up together, and copy a tape. Copy a VHS tape. If you're really young right now, you're like, what is he talking about? Tapes and VCRs? He's old. But if you remember that, you know, you might have a cousin come over and say, hey, I've got this movie. Oh, yeah, where'd you get it? I copied it from so-and-so. And you would put it on and it'd be like, ah, quality's kind of bad. Can't The audio isn't really great. I mean, I'm watching a free – I guess I'm getting what I paid for at this point. Eh. And I'm in no way encouraging anyone to pirate anything, by the way. Make sure that stands out in the recording, Dan. I don't want to get sued. But my point is this. A copy of a copy of a copy of a copy – it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. This is why the world is seemingly not getting better. The corruption has been copied and copied and copied and copied. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. That's why many of you will say, you know, this didn't happen 50 years ago. I know. That's all part of the design of it, really. It's just slowly deteriorating. And eventually Jesus returns and brings with him what? New heavens, new earth. Because creation itself is corrupted by the sin that has entered in. But here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Romans chapter 5 says this, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and many of you, many of you if you're like me, you're, 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 you're a thinker, you know? It doesn't mean you're always thinking the right thing. You're, just, you're, you're a thinker. You hear something, but what about this? And so, sometimes the argument is, well, well Adam messed up. I didn't mess up. Why am I being punished for his sin when I myself haven't sinned? Well, first of all, that's a lie. You sinned already. We are born inherent with that sin, and then we eventually grow up, and as soon as we can usually talk or walk, we, find, we, start, our, we start our sinful lifestyle. You know, you find kids that just shout, No! You're like, I just asked you if you wanted your toy. No! Eat your peas. No! Come here. No! And they run away. Just rebellion in their hearts. And eventually that forms into you know, other rebellions. Um, the Bible says that sin entered in through one man. That that's what we see today. That's the result of what we see today. And you might say, that's not fair. I don't understand. Well, let me read you this verse, and this will better clarify and make you to understand, hopefully, how this is all working out. So Romans 5 and 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, but who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many uh, trespasses brought justification. For it, because of one man's trespass, uh, trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. As sin entered into the world through one man, it was defeated by the righteous act of one man, Jesus Christ. This is why the one act of the cross is sufficient for us for all of eternity. Jesus doesn't have to be crucified every year. We don't have to be crucified like him in that way physically. That one act was enough. So if you've ever thought to yourself, God is not fair, notice that one man whom he created sinned, so he sends his own son to die singular, singularly one time for all of us. So if God is not fair, he's not fair against himself. You understand? It's not that he's not fair towards us. He's actually not fair in the sense that he himself takes our sin in our place. So yes, God is not fair to our benefit. That's the essence of grace. He is, he is putting down what we, should, what we should rightly receive to give us his son, which we do not deserve. Paul says... That, that in all of this, this is what makes, this is part of what makes Jesus preeminent. Big word. I don't use that word often. Yeah, I don't walk around going, hey, you know, this meal was preeminent to the previous meal. It's just not a word that's in my normal everyday vocabulary, unless I'm doing a Bible study or a sermon because it pops up in Scripture. So I want us to know what that word means. Preeminent means first of all things. It's a very basic definition. The head of all things. So Paul's argument to the Colossians, who had relegated Jesus to second, third, fourth, tenth, whatever, he's reminding them, he's retelling them, he's commanding them, look, Jesus is preeminent whether you put him there or not. And now it's our job, our duty, to recognize that authority in our lives. So for us, the best expression of this uh, Hosanna triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is not just to celebrate that 2,000 years ago Jesus did that, but that he has triumphantly entered into your heart, that he has set up a throne there, a throne that he will not uh, get rid of quickly, one that he will not abandon. He will not leave that position as much as you might try to cram into that position. Work and relationships and sin and this and that and money. You might try to put everything else first. Pleasure and joy and hobbies and vacations and just everything and anything first. Jesus still deserves that first place. And your life will always be upside down and all crazy 
until you start getting things in order like that. Until Jesus is first, everything else will be distorted. The Jews were given, I believe it was in Deuteronomy, a prayer called the Shema. You guys familiar with that? The Shema. And it's the, it's the uh, command or the verse, if you will, that Jesus recites when he's asked, what's the most important command? Because that's the type of thing we do as humans. Which, which one's most important? Which one, if I'm going to do any of the commands, which one should I be doing first? And so Jesus says, in De- or I should say God says in uh, Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall, have, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Basically, the command was you will love God with everything that you have, not just intellectually, not just emotionally in your heart, not just in, in theory, but in action as well. All of these things. Hear, O Israel. This was, a, this was a recited prayer that was recited often at specific times and specific places. It was called the Shema. God only gives commands to us because we are faulty. We do the same thing. If this seems foreign for some reason, let's just look at, let's just look at the world around us today. Something happens, let's make new laws so that doesn't happen again. Right? 20 years ago, what was identity theft like? It was, it was a lot easier because there wasn't any laws against it. But then computers and the internet and hacking and things like that started to arise. Like, oh, we've got to start making all these new laws. Because the sin always comes before the law. Paul just said the same thing in Romans. That between Adam and Moses, there was no law given. Adam sinned way back here. The law wasn't given to way up here, like some 1,500, 2,000 years later. Sin still existed, though. People were still still in identities back then. Now we have harsher laws, and it still gets done. But the, the law always comes after the sin. I want us to understand our nature as people. Um... It's important for us to know the nature of God. And that's where we'll spend most of our time and attention. But I need you to look at yourself. Not because you're so important or anything like that. And we can't look too much because we get too inward focused and we forget to look at Jesus. But I need us to understand human nature. One of my favorite things to do is just to watch people from a distance. You know, just watch them. You know, watch them, see how they interact with their kids. See that interact with, you know, waiters and waitresses and, or their spouses. To hear one say one thing and see how they're going to react and that sort of thing. And all of the time, I see nothing but consistency in how people act. The only time I see inconsistency in human nature is people who are involved in the church, who are, who are spirit-filled people. They end up doing the things you don't expect them to do. What do you mean you brought them a meal? It was out of your way and you were busy and you didn't get anything in return. Well, yeah, but I love them and I wanted to give to them. You know, you have every right to fight back. Yeah, but I'd rather glorify Jesus. Why would I fight back? You like that person? It'd be nothing but mean to you. Yeah, but Jesus loves them. And that doesn't make what they're doing right, but it doesn't make my actions in retaliation right either. See, we, we tend to be very fickle people. Up and down and up and down. and Yay, Jesus! Oh, the church. Oh, this, but I don't like this. And it's like, at some point, the spirit gets a hold of you and starts to even out that sort of spiritual um, bipolar issue that we tend to have. If we are experiencing those extreme highs and extreme lows, 
One minute we're on top of the world for Jesus. The next, we're just forsaking everything. We just got to look at our hearts and say, wait a minute, where has Jesus not got a hold of us? Where has the throne been, uh, I don't want to say occupied, but sort of overcrowded with other stuff? For the Colossians, they were putting everything else at the beginning to feel full, to feel whole, to feel like life was different. And Paul's telling them without pulling any punches, you just added the wrong stuff there. You've got Judaism, and you've got Gnosticism, and you've got this teaching, and that teacher, and that this, and this, and that. And, and I want to just express a warning. There is, there is one true gospel that we have to follow. And every variation and form and, and whatever, we're not seeking to follow any of that. So if someone were to come in and say, you know, the gospel tells me that all Christians should be poor. I just I would have plenty of verses to argue against that and say, no, your poverty gospel is a variation of the gospel. And that God has created people who are poor and people who are rich and given them different assignments. For the one that's very rich, he expects them to use that wealth to glorify him. For those who are poor, he's expecting them to rely upon him to still seek and serve, even though they don't have as much as the other person. And then maybe if they were to steward that well, the Bible says, if you're given a little and you steward it well, you might be given more. For some, they have a talent for making money and making money into more money. That doesn't make them evil. It doesn't make it wrong. It just makes them, it's, they're a person with a gift that you don't have. And so somebody coming in and saying, well, no, the Bible says Jesus was poor. I say, sure, he was poor. Solomon was rich. David seemed to be a very wealthy man as well. Abraham was a very wealthy man as well. Paul could make tents. I'm assuming he could make a good dollar or denarii or whatever they had back then at making a tent. So it's not about being rich is wrong or being poor is wrong. It's what has Jesus called you to and how are you doing there? Someone comes in and says, prosperity gospel, everybody should be rich. Nobody should ever be sick. You can name this and claim that and that'll happen. I would just argue back, that's not the gospel. The gospel tells us that, yes, Jesus is a healer. He can heal, but it doesn't guarantee that he will heal everybody. Paul will write to Timothy, hey, you're having these stomach aches? Drink a little bit of wine with that. Why didn't he just say, just, just pretend you're healed? And then, and then your faith will catch up with this, and then you'll, then you'll be healed. He doesn't say that. He says, drink a little wine. And some of you are like, yeah, he does. He said, drink a little wine. To settle his stomach. Calm down. Nobody go get sloshed tonight because you think you have a verse. But my point is this. And then somebody comes in, well, you have to be, uh, uh, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. First of all, we just cut out half the population of our church. And second of all, why? What, what do you say? Paul will say in Galatians that circumcision is of nothing now. That, that God has come not to circumcise our flesh, but to circumcise our heart. To, to, to make us something brand new. That, that if you revert back to the law, you're kind of forsaking Jesus at that point. So for these people who came into the Colossian church and were like, hey, this is great, but Judaism too. you got to worship the festivals and the new moon and the Sabbath and the tabernacles and, and, and trumpets and all that. And, and they were just like, oh, I guess so. Rather than going back to Jesus, rather than uh, pursuing a relationship with him, they, they tried to reach him through these many outward expressions. And all I keep finding in the word is that every time I think there's something that is 
you know, that thing we have to do that seems religious. I find some other verse that just knocks that away. And I'm finding Jesus just wants us in this free fall with him all of the time. Well, I'm going to have my, an- my prayer answered because I lit a candle. No, there's nothing like that in the Word. Well, I, I did Lent for 40 days and I didn't eat meat on Fridays. So what? You, you, you sacrificed a little. Now God has to perform for you? That doesn't, doesn't sound like the God of the Bible. You know, oh, my parents went to church for lots of years and they took me. Oh, yeah, but what about you? What, where, where's your life? Where's your faith? Well, I go to church on Easter and Christmas and that's all I do. Okay, well, your, your relationship is not exercised through your parents. It's, it's with you. And what are you going to do? What are you going to say? And what do you say about Jesus? This is not the main point of today's message. But as a side note, the vision of this church... Actually, I should say this is a pretty big point. The vision of this church for this year is that we would not be like the rest of the world. Go on Facebook and Google, you know, the hashtag, you know, something about Trump or Hillary or Bernie. And you've got people who are so angry and upset. And most of them are not even angry. They're whiny. There's a difference. Okay? Being Jesus was angry in the temple. But I wouldn't say he was whiny. I see people on Facebook. They're being very whiny. I'm not getting my pony. I'm not getting my stuff. Things aren't the way I want them to be. We are not called to that. We are not called to be like the world. We are called to be out of the world, unlike the world. Our citizenship is not here primarily. It's as though people who come from other countries on visas, they come here, they have permission to be here, but ultimately they belong to another land. That's who we are. We live here now. We're on a spiritual visa, but one day we go back to be with the Lord because that's our true place. And so you should fight for what is right. You should stand for righteousness and all that. But at the end of the day, all of our hope as Christians should be in Jesus and Jesus alone. Our hope is not in who will be in power. Our hope is in who is in power, the most power, the complete power. That's Jesus. We don't have to get caught up in all of this. We don't have to be like the world. We don't have to fight every argument. Somebody said something about this. Well, I'm going to tell them what for. Why? And just ask yourself, at what point will Jesus receive glory for this? Will I make a person who has heard me, or will I end up just pushing them farther into their thoughts? I guarantee you, especially if it's on social media, you will do nothing but prove to them what they already believe. And so what the world needs to see now is something different. So our, our vision or the vision for this church, especially for this year in such political turmoil, is to remain steadfast. And we're not running back and forth scared. Oh, no, Marco Rubio's not running anymore. What are we going to do? It's like, who cares? Obviously, God doesn't intend for him to be the president of this United States. I, I believe that God is sovereign unless Hillary Clinton's elected. Is she God? I, I, last time I checked, God not only was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but everything that's opposite of her. Again, not throwing her under the bus, just saying it's not as though God can only move if he has a certain leader in place. Obviously, certain candidates would provide for us certain religious liberties that would may remain th- have things remain lawful. That's great. That's a good thing. But churches, those things start to be taken away from us, realize It's not as though something strange is happening, the Bible says. We're actually, our nation is becoming like the other nations of the world who are already gone through this. 
They've already had their religious liberty stripped away. The early church was birthed out of a place where they had no rights. They had no liberties. And yet the church exploded in the face of opposition. Paul writes in Romans 13 to pray for your leaders. He'll pray again in, uh, in, at the end of Colossians to pray for those who are appointed. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, I believe it is, uh, he'll tell Timothy, hey, pray for all people, and especially those who are kings and leaders. He's writing for a time not of great political peace. He's writing from the time where the Caesar, who is in charge, Caesar Nero, I believe, is lighting Christians on fire to light his gardens. He's dipping them in wax, lighting them on fire so he can walk through his gardens at night. Last time I checked, none of our political leaders were doing that. He, he was taking Christians and feeding them or causing them to have combat with lions while the whole Roman Colosseum would watch. You know, there are people who watch football nowadays go, that's a barbaric sport. Well, that's not the most barbaric sport. And these Christians, they wouldn't even fight back. They would just kneel down, begin to pray, and then be devoured by lions. Whole crowd cheering, yeah! Last time I checked, that's not happening, right? Nero, I believe it was, and I could be wrong. If you guys are historians or whatever, please correct me if I'm wrong. But eventually he'll burn down Rome and then blame it on the Christians. I say that to contrast the position that we're in now. Things are bad, but things aren't that bad. They will get worse. We will lose liberties. But those were liberties that were given by man in the first place. You are called to worship Jesus no matter what the law is. You are called to love your neighbor no matter what the world tells you to do. You have a set of commands that you must be following. And this is the part that makes Jesus preeminent in your life. His laws, his commands, his desires, and his will come first in your life. Everything else gets sacrificed at the altar. You know, Hey, you have the, the liberty and the rights to do something? Awesome. You know, Exercise that. Use that. Government takes it away, you're still called to do something. So church, I am, I am encouraging you, pleading with you, every word in the thesaurus that you can find under that heading with you to remain steadfast. Don't join in the rhetoric of the rest of the world that wants to you know, share theories and conspiracies and false information or, or maybe even good information that's just falsely portrayed. Hesitate. Resist that temptation. On Tuesdays, we're doing something called Super Tuesdays. I named it that because of the Super Tuesday elections. But we'll do Super Tuesdays from now until uh, November when the election happens. Every Tuesday, spend a few moments in prayer for the men and women who are running for positions of power in our country and for those who are influenced by them. You know, Again, I want to do this without throwing anybody under the bus. But we've seen the Donald Trump uh, rallies and you've seen the protesters and you've seen the violence. He should condemn that. He's not doing anything. How about we just pray for these people? How about we just pray for these people who are so angry and bitter towards another human being that they would physically violate them? No matter what side they're on, it doesn't matter. You raise your hand to somebody, you've done something wrong. Without being provoked, without, being, without there being any real serious reason to. A lot of these people professing to be Christians and then striking other people doesn't make any sense to me. So rather than just saying Donald Trump's the worst or this is why our country needs to change no matter which side you're on, say, you know what, this is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. I'm going to pray for these folks. That guy that just got punched, I'm going to pray for him. The guy who was doing the punching, I'm going to pray for him. Whatever rally is happening, I'm going to pray for that person too. 
refrain from sharing stuff on Facebook and Twitter. You know how many things I see every day? I'm, I'm just about to share it. And I'm like, Super Tuesdays. I'm like, oh, I can't share this because I'm a big, huge hypocrite. And I'm already good at that. i got to stop being good at that. So you just you just scroll on, scroll on. Sometimes I hide things. I, I don't want to see that anymore. It's too much of a temptation. I hide it, hide it, hide it. Praise God, I've got a wife who will you know, kind of keep me accountable to that and vice versa. Because you see something, you're like, oh, that's really funny. But I can't. Because that's not what I want to be a part of. Because I want Jesus to be glorified. I want people to see hope in Christ. Not that being a Christian just means that you're Republican or you're right-wing or you're this or you're that. I want them to see that being a Christian is somebody who's being a Christ follower. And, and, and even if I'm being a bad example, I still want them to see that Jesus is good. Amen? So how do you respond to all this? How do you, how do you, you know, what's the tangible thing you do now? Well, first you pray. You, you, you pray a prayer of repentance. Understand, we don't repent because we have the power to, meaning like, I'll just repent. No, you have the grace to repent. That means God allows you to repent. He has laid out before you like the red carpet towards repentance. All you must simply do is walk it. And say, Lord, this is where I've been, and now I see that is wrong. You've opened my eyes. Thank you for that. Help me now to repent. And he wants you to repent. He's going to help you repent. He's going to help you come out of the life that you were heading towards into the life that he has died to give you. Repent. Simple prayer. God, I'm so sorry. And I, and I, and I forsake that to come back to you. Just like the prodigal son. I've wasted my life. I've wasted my inheritance. I'm going to go back to my father. It's repentance. Surrender. I don't know how you can do Christianity without surrendering like 23 hours and 59 minutes out of the day. I just don't know how you don't surrender. Now, you, you, you fight. You know, for your family and things like that. I, I get all that. We're talking about before the throne of God. I don't know how we keep fighting there and follow Jesus at the same time. I only find people that are completely surrendered to God are the ones whose life I look at and go, man, they know Jesus. Because they've laid down everything. They've surrendered to God. They haven't surrendered to the world. The world might even get the best of them at times, but they don't surrender to the world. They surrender to Jesus. Worship. In the formula, and I don't mean for this to be a formula because I'm actually very anti-formula, but I find that for those who surrender, worship is the natural response after that. I've laid down myself. I've seen that I am unholy, but man, I see that God is holy. and He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be worshipped. He does love me with a great love. He has forgiven me of so much. Things that I can't forget, he has forgotten, no longer holds against me. They've been swallowed up by the blood of Jesus. They no longer exist in his eyes. I might remember them. Satan might hurl those accusations at me, but that's where they end. Jesus remembers them no more, was willing to die on the cross for them. So you worship. Think about the lady in uh, Luke chapter 7. She, she cries at Jesus' feet and then wipes his feet with her tears and her hair. I've gone on record, and I'm not afraid to say this. I don't like people's feet. 
know, the whole foot washing thing. We'll do it eventually, but I'm not there yet, so we'll get there, okay? If you guys want to wash each other's feet, by all means, go for it. It's awesome. Jesus washed disciples' feet, and I and I will right then say, yeah, I'm I'm not Jesus. He could do that. I got a thing with feet. I don't like touch my own feet. Okay, it's it's not. I'm not a prejudice just against everybody else's feet. It's feet in general. But this woman is at Jesus's feet, and if you've got this idea of Jesus walking around clean all the time. Like he sort of just floated around everywhere, like one of those ships in the Jetsons. He just never really touched ground. That's not how it was. Jesus was a man who wore sandals, walked dirt roads that animals walked as well. And the reason why men's feet had to be washed is because they were filthy. And this woman's at Jesus' feet, and she's crying so much that the tears are like melting whatever's on his feet. And so she just takes her hair and says, I'll use this as a towel. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Because he is worthy of even something like that. Now most of us would say in our hearts, if it's Jesus, then we have to have the best towel, purified water, some of those smelly soaps that our wives buy for our home. we got to have something nice. It's Jesus for, for, for crying out loud. you got to have the best of everything. And what Jesus wants is just you. And to this day, thousands of years later, this woman's example is still there. This is worship, bowing down before the king in adoration and reverence. And lastly, realizing this, that you are not alone. You are not alone in this. Every trial, every tribulation, every pain of your heart every experience of your past, every threat from the future, you are not alone. The triumphal entry of Jesus into your heart guarantees that from here until eternity, you will always be with him. On top of that, and this is not the cherry on top, on top of that, he has given you his church, his broken, dysfunctional, infighting, backbiting, unfaithful church. And as much as we falter in that, as much as we, in our country especially, that's what the church is known for, God, the Bible says, is taking us and refining us by his word. And he has given the church to you, not just to be a part of, that's good, but also to be served by. It's, it's a symbi symbiotic thing. We're both working, or synergistic thing. It's both of us working together. And so all I would encourage you to do is, as people of this church and people of the church body collective around the world, is that we are, from time to time, we're going to have to look past some stuff. Not because it's right, not affirming it, but saying, man, God has given me a lot of grace too. So I better have some grace for these folks. And I better forgive them, even if they're not asking for forgiveness. And they may never ask for forgiveness. But Jesus called me to forgive, so i got to do that. Will he make things right? Oh, absolutely. God is a God of justice. You read the Bible, he's a God of justice. Someone wrongs you, he's going to take care of that. I have big lengthy discussions about my to my kids that you know see that guy just cut us off in the road you know in one theory here he's now my enemy bible tells me to pray for him why or her whoever it is because they have now become an enemy of the child of god of, of a child of god so if you're like me you know and, and like me growing up let me give you a really funny story and if my mom hears this she's going to uh she's going to cringe so when i was like 6 there was a local bully 
and uh, I was so afraid of him because he he's like you guys have in elementary school the kid who was just like seven feet tall like he's in second grade I'm in first grade he's in second grade but I swear in my memory this kid was like a mountain he was so big he must have flunked back like two or three hundred grades because he was just huge and I was so afraid of him one day I'm walking home and I see him and I do the whole if I don't see you you don't exist type thing you know he proceeds to tell me that my mother has talked to him and encouraged him air quotes to be a friend to me rather than a bully. And I don't know, I, I've seen my mom, and the fear of God was in this kid. And there you go. That's what happened. Um, this tends to be how we react in the church. Someone does something wrong, and we get scared, and they become a spiritual bully. And rather than having grace for them and seeking God for them, we we just avoid them or we just avoid it or we just avoid that bibles give us a very clear path on how to reconcile things you know go to each other then go to the pastor then go to the church if that doesn't help then we just part ways but you do everything you can to make things right ultimately that we might together move forward you know church i don't go any farther than you guys i, I can't i went to the reason why i went to new york city on thursday was to visit a seminary um, that was offering some classes, and it was really cool. It was offered by Tim Keller's church in New York City. Didn't know that going up there. Didn't find out until I got there. It was really cool, and I thought, wow, it'd be really fun to you know get a degree or whatever. And I thought, but would that really further our church? You know, that's a big commitment. It's like fifteen thousand dollars a semester. You have to live in the city. I mean, it's, I'm obviously not going there because I'm not going to live in the city. But you know, seminary in general is that going to make our church better? I look around and I see a church that's very divided right now. We need some help. And so what we need to do is come together, not to keep dividing, keep dividing, keep dividing. You know, our church is to be united. It means we put past our own feelings sometimes for the good of the rest of us. Some of you would call that being a grown-up. Some of you would call that being the bigger person. I would call it being a biblical Christian. And so I, I ask for you now to stand and let's pray together. Um, how many people we have in church today? We're missing a lot of people. And for, for weeks I've been saying, oh, it's sickness and illness. And part of that's true. But part of that's also because we are kind of finding ourselves in a place where we are becoming divided and more divided. And we live in a place where there are hundreds of churches and people are just going to leave. Now, I'm not against people leaving if they feel led to leave. I'm not going to beg you to stay, and I'm not going to force you out either. You know, I hope that you come here and want to be part of it, just like my regular family. You want to be family? Cool. You want to hang out? All right, go hang out with other family. Okay, I'm going to watch TV. Same thing. I love you guys. Don't want to see you go anyway. I hope that's not coming off that way. My wife were here. She would tell me it is. Um, but I want you to know, too, if, if God leads you somewhere else, hey, let me pray for you. We love you. But I don't want people to leave for the wrong reasons. That would be the only good reason. Wrong reason is they said this. They did that. I heard this. This isn't being done my way. Blah, blah, blah. That's not right. So let's pray together. Amen? Father God, the word says that you are preeminent, that you are before all things. That this church, this city, this earth, this galaxy, Lord, it was created through you, by you, and for your son Jesus. You are before all things.
You are preeminent, the firstborn of all creation. So, Father, we are seeking that this place would be a place that glorifies that, that just reiterates and proclaims that truth which is. Father, wherever we falter or you know, wherever we fall short doesn't change the truth about you. So, Father, I'm praying that your truth would change us. Lord, ultimately, we love you. And you have called us to be together. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us. I am literally praying for a miraculous move of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I look at every other group on the face of the planet. You know, just as an example, the Republicans and the Democrats, very divided people. They're just human organizations that can't get things together. But we have you. We should have a difference. We should have someone who makes a difference in this so that young and old and male and female and black and white and old school, new school, that we all can look past those limitations to see you, the one who binds all of us crazy people together. I pray, Lord, that if we have grievances towards each other, that we would make them known to one another, not through... Not through social media, not through third parties, Lord, but that we just go to each other and say, hey, this is what's happened, and I need to talk to you about it. That we would be people seeking to reconcile, not to be justified. That we'd be people who are looking to make the family of God stronger, not weaker. That repentance and forgiveness would be sought. That if we have wronged another person, that we would indeed say that we're sorry and mean it that we'd be sorry that we would cause such division and that you would take from here and like the phoenix rising from the ashes, this would cause us to actually grow closer. And Father, I, I don't mean for this to sound like a magic pill that we just do this and everything's better. I'm just praying that you would start doing that in this church. Start with me. Help me, Lord. And may we be people of repentance and people of worship and people of surrender and people who are just loved by the God of all creation. May you be glorified, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.